you, this is God's message for Scotland Presbyterian Church. So hear the word of the Lord. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sword. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word, may we pray. Lord, help me concisely, clearly to be true to the text of Scripture that we have just read. Lord, open all our hearts to receive what you have for us here this day as we celebrate the 177th anniversary of the founding of the Scotland Presbyterian Church. Apply your words to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice something in our text. The rich man also died and was buried. We're remembering a cemetery today. I remember the first time Sandy and I came to worship with you all, we decided to wander down the road and look at that cemetery. And boy, did we discover things. I discovered that there was a grave in that cemetery of a woman who was born in Scotland in the 1700s. Wow, that is really something. It is an amazing thing that you all have in your cemetery the body of a lady born in Scotland in the 1700s who, after the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, people in North Carolina began to think about, you know, it's probably a better place to be than North Carolina. Now that's hard for me to believe if they were in western North Carolina, but they began to head west. Many, many people. And North Carolina was the Scottish state. Most of North Carolina was filled with Scottish Presbyterians. So they migrated. It took a while. But they finally got over here to Junction City, and they founded this church in 1845. It was established as an independent, as an individual congregation in a presbytery. So the official beginning is when presbytery organized this church though the meetings began to be in the house before that. So I want you to think about it. The rich man died and was buried. You know, it's important to have a burial. There's no record here that Lazarus was buried at all. He probably wasn't buried because we know that in those days, the bodies of criminals and others were oftentimes thrown on the garbage pit. You know, that's the background of Mark chapter 9. The bodies of criminals and people who had nobody to claim them were thrown on a garbage pit. Isn't that amazing to think about? The rich man died and was buried. But this is part of a series of parables. And I want you to look at chapter 16, verse 1. And there Jesus said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Anyhow, you know the story. 
the rich man calls for his steward to come and give him an account. And the steward, he knows he's in trouble because he's been doing something that people have been doing from time immemorial. He'd been cooking the books. <laughs> cooking the books. The story is told of Meyer Lansky, who was a Jewish mafia man, that he had such an amazing brain that in the two sets of books that he kept for mafia people, the, the, the important set of books was all in his brain. So the FBI and others could never find the, the set of books that were there because people often have two sets of books. So this man knows he's in trouble and he begins to figure out, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And what he does is come up with a very clever way of getting out of it. Anyhow, now it's interesting as we read down there in verse 3, Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig to beg, I am ashamed. I'm resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So anyhow, he, he begins to come up with a way of, of doing things. And he told people, you owe the master how much? He said, well, change it here. We're going to go ahead and change it. So he does all that. Now, verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Notice this. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. What's he saying? He's saying worldly people are smarter than you. If you're a real Christian... You have a certain naivete about it. But ungodly, worldly people are shrewd and slick, and they figure out how to do things. And notice what, what he says here in verse 9. And remember that Jesus used sarcasm sometimes. Jesus used humor when he told a parable, told a story. Look at what Jesus says in verse 9. And he says, And I say unto you, Make yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, when that, that when ye fail, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. Now I've heard preachers preach on that passage and say, This is about being a good capitalist, taking money that you earn, and investing it to make more money, and then investing it in the kingdom of God. That isn't what Jesus is saying. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying ungodly people invest in ungodly things, and they're going to end up in hell along with their friends. That's what he's really saying. It's irony he's using here. He's, he's using this as irony to say, go ahead, focus on making money. Making money, making money, making money, making more money, and more money, and more money, and invest in things that will make more money. I was at a funeral of a man one time, and, and the chaplain that spoke at his funeral said, as he had visited him in the nursing home, what can I do for you, Mr. So-and-so? And he said, make me more money. And that man was worth millions of dollars. Wow. What is Jesus saying here? He's telling a sort of joke, and he's saying, be like that unrighteous steward, that crook, that embezzler, and invest in things so that when everything fails, your friends who are in hell will welcome you in hell. That's really what Jesus is saying. And then he goes on, 
And he talks about not serving two masters. And then he says in verse 15, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. What's highly esteemed among men? What is it? What was that song? I went into a bar and this old cowpoke, I asked him, what's the secret of life? And he said, it's, it's younger women, faster horses, older whiskey, and more money. You ever heard that song? Younger women, older whiskey, faster horses, more money. That's what the world really does esteem. And ungodly men who have no respect for God whatsoever, they're looking for a younger woman. And they're looking when it comes to the horses for faster horses. And they're looking for older whiskey. And they're looking for what everybody is really looking for, isn't it? Aren't we going to be honest here? More money! I want more money! How about you? And that's the whole thing. That which is highly esteemed for men by men is worthless in the sight of God. Why is it worthless? Well, if we read down in the parable that Jesus tells us on page 1133, we see why. The rich man died, and he was buried. And read on. Verse 23, and in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, I need to offer some corrections to the King James Version at this point, based on the Greek text. He's not in hell. That isn't what's said. The word that's used there is the word Hades, which is not the same as hell. It is how the rabbis who translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek a couple of hundred years before Jesus translated the Hebrew word Sheol. Sheol, Sheol, sometimes translated as the grave, represents the compartment of the dead, both righteous and unrighteous, before Christ ascended to heaven. So we're not talking about hell. There's another word that's used for hell in the Bible, and that is Gehenna. Gehenna is taken from the garbage dump of Jerusalem, which is where they threw criminals, the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And it was a place where the worm never died and the fire never was quenched. This is not hell. This is Sheol. This is the place where the righteous dead and the unrighteous dead went until Jesus ascended from heaven. And we see that for a number of reasons here. And where he, he, at the very end of this parable... Uh, verse 28, verse 27, I'm sorry. Then he said, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come unto this place of torment. This is what we call the intermediate state. The intermediate state is the state of people 
prior to the second coming of Christ, when the dead in Christ rise, when everyone rises and they stand before God in judgment, and the ungodly who have been suffering torment from the time of death on until the time they stand before God at the great white throne judgment, those that don't know the Lord, the rich, the poor, the mighty, the inconsequential, the great men in history and the nobodies in history, it says in Revelation 20:15, and whosoever name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is not the lake of fire. That is a future thing. This is the intermediate state. And the rich man is very burdened. He's very evangelistic. He didn't care about anything but more money in this life. But now that he is in the second life, he's very concerned. And he's concerned about people he loves, people he knows, people he cares about. Please, please send Lazarus to talk to my five brothers. I don't want him to come here. And look what Abraham says in verse 29. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Verse 30, And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31, And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. I know someone who rose from the dead. Do you? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the very person that's telling this parable, the Lord Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. He proved that he had conquered death and Hades. He proved it by rising from the dead. You know, it's interesting that when the soldiers who were guarding the tomb of Jesus witnessed the resurrection of Christ, when those angels came and rolled that stone away, they saw something truly amazing. What did they see? You know what they saw? They saw Christ risen from the dead. They actually saw Christ risen from the dead. They really did. And they ran away in terror. They were terrified. And they went and reported it. And then what happens? The chief priest and the Sadducees and some of the Pharisees got together and said, We're going to bribe them. We're going to bribe them. And they bribed them. They said, You go, you go tell this story. His disciples came and stole his body away. Those tucked between their, the tail tucked between their legs, disciples of Jesus who fled, all of them including Peter, came and overcame armed guards. You know, it's interesting to me that nobody ever questioned the disciples when they tortured them in the first century. They tortured them. Did they ever ask them, where's the body? They never did. You know why? Because they knew that Jesus rose from the dead. They couldn't explain it. They probably figured it was something done by Satan because they were so religious that they couldn't have anything to do with Jesus. Are you like that? So religious you can't have anything to do with Jesus? Wow. So they bribed the guards. They bribed the guards. But they never asked the disciples, where's his body? They knew where his body was. That is, they knew where it wasn't. They knew that something had happened. They couldn't explain it. Just like you and I might see something. We can't explain it. We say, well, it can't be that. 
And so people were not persuaded, even though one rose from the dead. Now, there's some other things in this text we need to see. As we go back to verse 22, it came to pass the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. What is Abraham's bosom? Well, we need to understand what it's like to eat together. We're going to understand that in a modern way in a few minutes when I finish. I'm not finished yet. (laughs) How did people eat back in those days? They laid down on couches and they would reach over and they would get their food like that. And so if you think about the Last Supper, it's not like Leonardo da Vinci's painting. They're not sitting at a table. Uh, They're like this, leaning on their side and reaching over and getting food with their hands. And the person who would be uh, at your bosom side, that's where where, uh, John was, the Apostle John. He was in Jesus' bosom. That is to say that Jesus is here and he's eating and next to him is John, the Apostle John, and he's next to him. So he can lean over and whisper, Lord, what is this? What, what's this? Peter motions to him, ask him, ask him. And so he's in his bosom. Now look, this is the amazing thing. At the heavenly banquet, which wasn't yet in heaven, it was in Sheol, but it was in the side of, of Sheol that we call paradise, where the righteous dead stayed until Christ freed them and took them into heaven. There is in the seat of honor. This is the whole point of the parable. Who is sitting there at the seat of honor? The seat of honor is next to Abraham himself. Abraham, who is the father not only of the Jewish people, but of the Arab people. In fact, probably if you did DNA on the people in the entire Middle East, you would discover that probably everybody had Abraham's DNA in them. But in this place of honor... At this banquet in paradise, the man at the place of honor is what? He's Lazarus. This poor worthless beggar who was covered with sores. He was nasty. He smelled bad. Everything you think about, that's who Lazarus was. And in fact, the rich man was aware of Lazarus, but basically... You know, it's like if you drive over to El Dorado. I don't know if this happens up here, but I can tell you in Texarkana, I can tell you in Alexandria, I can tell you in Houston, I can tell you in every city I have to drive through. Houston and and, uh, San Antonio are the worst. But every city I drive through, you'll see people on the side of the road. You know, do this for that, do this for that. And they're just there. And probably most of them are con men and con women. But... They're people that we don't, we tune out so we don't really notice them. So here is this worthless guy, this guy that stank. He smelled bad. He was filthy. The only comfort this man had, Lazarus, were the dogs because dogs, dogs love to lick pus. They do. And so they came and they licked the pus coming out of his sores. That was his only comfort. It's a gross and nasty picture. Jesus told gross and nasty stories. Do you hear what I said? Jesus told gross and nasty stories because he wanted people to escape what he knew to be true. In the final judgment, an eternal 
lake of fire with unending torment, agony, and woe. So Jesus often told nasty stories, stories that make us go, gross! Don't talk like that. But Jesus talked like that. I want to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ who has called me to preach the gospel. So he told the story of a man that nobody would notice. Nobody would help. Poor Lazarus is there and he's hungry. I'm so hungry. I just want to have something to eat. I, if I could just get some crumbs falling from the rich man's table. Oh, Oh, somebody help me. Nobody helped him. And so finally Lazarus dies. And there's no record he was buried. But notice what happened. He was carried by the angels to the very place of honor in paradise, in that underworld where the righteous and unrighteous went before the ascension of Christ. And it's a place where people could see each other. Because... Sheol was vast, but there was a great gulf fixed so that people who the unrighteous dead could not cross over to where the righteous dead were, nor could the righteous dead cross over to where the unrighteous dead were. Notice what he says here. In, uh, in, in verse 24, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. It's all psychological. It's all psychological. He didn't have a body in the intermediate state. His body was resting in the grave. Please help me. Please help me. Please help me. He cries out to Abraham who, uh, he, from whom he was descended. And he sees Lazarus in the place of honor. But he still thinks like a rich man. You're here to serve me. Wow. Maybe that beggar, my ancestor Abraham, will send him to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm tormented in the flame. It's all psychological. Do you know that people know hell on earth? In this world? Sandy and I once witnessed a man die and go to hell. Do you think I'm kidding? I'll never forget his death. He was a wicked old man and very rich. And we had prayed for him and prayed with him. And he was lying in a hospital bed. And a short time before he died, we saw this look on his face. It was a look of abject horror. And even though he was extremely weak, extremely emaciated because of cancer. He tried to climb out of that hospital bed with a look of complete terror. On the other hand, I remember the death of my father in 1987. I was with him when he died. I had just finished reading him the, past, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. And the last two words, my ever, uh, the last Two sentences my father ever spoke were these on a Saturday night, September 27th, 1987, as I'm reading about heaven. I see it. I see it. And he never spoke again. And about two hours later, after the death rattle, daddy died. I contrast the death of this rich doctor with the death of my poor father. You see, people experience psychologically 
as they're dying, the other world. So here is Lazarus. He's in the place of honor. He's at the, at the chief table in the banquet hall. And then look at what Abraham says in verse 25. Son, because he recognized this man was one of his descendants. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come to us. Wow. Let's draw this to a conclusion. We're here to remember the dead today. Those who went before us. Those who are interred in our cemetery of the Scotland Presbyterian Church. A lady born in Scotland in the 1700s interred there. What's really important? What's really important? The value system of this world as we've seen in the parables leading up to this, God doesn't think much of it. God doesn't think much of it. What God thinks about is what? He wants your heart. He wants your heart. Because when God's got your heart, He's got your pocketbook. I don't preach tithing. I don't believe in tithing. I tithe. But I don't preach it and I don't believe in it. I believe people need to give as God directs them. And for one person, it may be less than a tithe. For many people, it's much more than a tithe. Is God really interested in preserving the building here and the cemetery? Or is God interested in this? And I may never get to preach to you again. And so with a sense of very seriousness... I have a word from God for you. What's the purpose of this church? Is the purpose to honor the dead who are either in heaven or hell today awaiting the final judgment? Or is the purpose of this church to reach lost people with the gospel? That's what it's all about. Is Jesus in these parables telling people that if you're poor, you get to go to heaven, and if you're rich, you're going to go to hell? Not at all. All you have to do is look at Jesus' words to the rich young ruler who told him to, who Jesus told, go and sell everything you have and follow me, and you'll have treasure in heaven. But he went away sorrowful because the more you got, the harder it is to get rid of it. But the disciples understood what Jesus was saying. What Jesus is really saying is this. You've got to give it all up. Not you, not I. None of us owns our house, our car, or the thing that I value the most. Ask my wife, what do I value most? Time. I value time enormously. That's why I'm stealing yours right now for my good lunch. 1208. I'm not done yet. I value time. And therefore, when people take my time, when I've got a plan to do this or a plan to do that, when they take my time, I have to give it to God. Because I don't own time. God owns time. What are the things you value the most? 
What God wants of you and me today is this. Give it all up. Because if God has your heart, He has you. So remember this. You own a car? Not really. You own a house? Not really. You own this church? Of course not. This church belongs to God. You are merely caretakers for God's property. That's what you're charged with today. That's why we raise money for the cemetery fund. Because none of you owns this church. You're simply caretakers for this church. You want to be good stewards. But listen, dear ones, you need to understand that what is true of the cemetery and of this church building is true for absolutely everything in your life, as it is for me. What Jesus really wants is to lay it all down at His feet. Because here's the great lesson. What you lay down at Jesus' feet in this life, I've learned He will give it back. And often with great abundance. So what are you holding on to? Whatever you're holding on to, you need to give it up. Because if you don't, do you really want to die with arthritic hands like mine are? Arthritic hands holding on to something you value greatly. I'm never going to give this up. Oh yeah, you'll give it up. Corey Ten Boom said one time, I've learned to prize the things in this life, hold the things of this life loosely because it hurts when God pries my fingers loose. So the bottom line, on the 177th anniversary of the founding of the Scotland Presbyterian Church is this. You're a dying church. Come on. You know you are. How are you going to not be a dying church? Go out and get your neighbors. Knock on their doors. Ask them to come to church. Invite them. Make this church effective in this community. Can you do that? Oh, Bob, you don't know. We're so old now. We're so worn out. I've borne the burden in the heat of the day. I can't do that kind of stuff anymore. Really? Why are you alive? Why are you alive? Why are you alive? Make Jesus known to other people. Because I want you to understand something. There really is a hell that's psychological in the present time and will be literal in a lake of fire when the Lord returns. There really is a hell. And there are people in this church today, unless I miss my guess, who are on your way to hell. Maybe it's a grandchild. Maybe it's a son or a daughter. Maybe it's a cousin. I concluded a long time ago, as a person who was baptized into the Presbyterian Church as a baby, and who's been preaching since 1965, most people in most churches, Baptists especially, Presbyterians especially, Methodists especially, most people in most churches don't really have a true personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They come to church, not, in, not post-COVID like they used to. COVID has been a wonderful thing for purifying the church of God. But people used to always just flood the church. I look at that beautiful picture that Sandra put up on uh, Facebook. All those people. Wow. All those people. Where are they? Well, some are interred down the road. All those people. What are we going to do? I want to ask two questions of each person here today.
Number one, because this may be my last sermon that I ever preach anywhere, and I've preached thousands of sermons. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is the Lord Jesus Christ real and precious to you? Can you say, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold? Wow. Can you say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today? Do you love Jesus more than you love things? If you do, God bless you. You're a believer. You know the Lord because true faith is always accompanied by a changed life. Do you know the Lord Jesus? I don't want when I come to die and face the Lord to discover I have blood on my hands because I fail to warn people. And the second question is this. If you don't know the Lord, what are you going to do? I would be so happy to lead you to Christ personally. Talk to me. Even come forward. I think that an altar call is not inappropriate on a day like this. That is the question of salvation. Now I have this third question, which is for the believers who are here, who know the Lord and know that you know the Lord. What are you going to do to revive this church? I'm going to tell you what I see on the horizon. Because I read a lot. I'll read a variety of of news articles from a variety of papers. America's over. America's over. I preached in Texarkana right after Uvalde. What's it like to be in a Texas church in the wake of Uvalde? I found out that about a third of the congregation was caring that day. Wow. Anybody here caring? Don't raise your hand. About a third of the congregation, they're Texans, Lone Star State, the Lone Ranger. I'm going to tell you about America. America's done for, unless, thank you, Jan, for your prayer, unless we have a third great awakening. I'm as serious as a heart attack. That's pretty serious. I always wanted to die giving an invitation, but not yet. What do I mean? America is being ripped apart by social media, by the mainstream media, by minority media, by the two parties who are determined to fight each other no matter what it does to the United States. There's violence in our streets. And there's so many evil spirits that have been permitted to roam our land. They're going to find angry people, particularly angry young men who haven't got a daddy and set them off doing crazy stuff. America's done for it. What can I do about that, Bob? I'm going to tell you what you can do about it. Pray. Gather together with other believers. Do you all have a prayer meeting here? Why don't you have a prayer meeting where you gather together and cry out to God and say, Oh God, save our nation. Oh God, save our community. I guess I'd rather live out here in that manse across the street than to live in any major United States city. Because the world we're in now is the craziest I've ever seen. It's crazy.
People are hating each other. Man going to a Supreme Court justice house, planning a killing. We're in unbelievably bad times. Can you make a difference? Yes, I hear that, said the Lord. <laughs> We're in unbelievably bad times. Why don't you do something about it? Gather for prayer. Second thing, why don't you go and try to recruit neighbors? Oh, Bob, my neighbors are already churched. Do they hear the gospel regularly? Do they hear the gospel regularly? Share your faith with others. My wife and I walk a lot. Just last night, after we had had supper uh, with uh, Vicki and, and with Bill Laney, we met a young lady, and we began to share with her. And we were able to pray with her. Wow, up there in El Dorado. Wow, because the purpose of my wife's life and my life is wherever we're going, wherever we're walking, whatever we're doing, Lord, show us somebody we can share Jesus with today. Because most American, quote, Christians don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you commit yourself to making a difference? May we pray. Lord, take my feeble words as I've tried to expound this chapter of your word. I pray that nobody here gets the idea that we're saved by being poor or lost because we're rich. Because we confess and we believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we also confess that true faith is always accompanied by a changed life. If we're saved and we know it, then our lives will surely show it. May it be true for this church that at the end of the 177th year, we may have a better year because we devote ourselves more earnestly to prayer and more earnestly to sharing our faith with others. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.